Hello everybody and welcome to this special episode of Media Voices, looking back at the pandemic to determine who have been the big winners and losers of the media world. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. So just over a year ago now, we looked at the publishers who had adapted to the pandemic with subscription surges, virtual events and more. But a year on, we're taking a look back to see who delivered on that promise, who is thriving despite the pandemic, and unfortunately, who hasn't made the most of what, Peter, I'm sure you will say, <laughs> was a good crisis that shouldn't have gone to waste. I've got that written in there. <laughs> I, love, I, love the, uh, I love the optimism of looking back at the pandemic. Yeah, and well, fingers crossed we won't be doing this again in a year's time. <laughs> Before we get into it, though, we do want to trail an upcoming special episode that we have in our conversation series. So for publishers with a well-established content workflow, adding podcasts can seem like a daunting task, but for many, they already have what they need to create a great podcast and get it in front of their audience. So I was joined by Eurosports Ord Baron and Sarah Toproff from Podinstall to talk about how you can turn that evergreen content into audio, not just for your own website, but to really bring podcast discovery home. Really great chat. Look out for it uh, either this week or next. Great chat. And there's a lot of practical advice from what Eurosport has done in actually launching a bunch of new audio products. So do keep an ear out for that this week. Before that, though, we're going to talk about who our big winners and losers in publishing have been. And I got halfway through writing my big winner one about the Financial Times because they have been a sort of leading light in providing accurate information and, more importantly, context about what's been going on over the course of the pandemic. And it's made a minor superstar of some of its journalists like uh, John Byrne Murdoch, who have been producing these very, very easy-to-pass charts. They made all their con- they made all their coronavirus content free to access in, you know, in the face of a lot of resistance from people who said that was not a good idea. And they've been rewarded financially and in terms of kind of the trust of the public as a result. But an even bigger winner than that, and I'm sure both of you will agree, has been the big issue. Yeah, I was, was going to say, I'd have said the FT was a fairly boring choice, but then I forgot about the charts. And their COVID <laughs> charts have been quite good, to be fair. But yeah, yeah. Big, big, big issue, absolutely. Like, they've just been super like I, I can't even list the length of the, the things they've been doing this year to help their um, their sellers yeah. well i'll do that but i'm sure that, like <laughs> over the course i can't think of any media outlet who over the course of the year we have praised more often for how quickly they turned new endeavors around to really help their vendors because they, they are not your typical publisher they have a mission which is to support their vendors and they have been completely among the most hit by the pandemic as footfall has just effectively vanished and the actual ability of them to sustain themselves through a living wage has just disappeared altogether. But I'm just going to go through what the big issue has done to really help those you know who have been among the most badly affected. So almost, God, it was within a few weeks it launched a subscription product, which is going to help its distributors. And this was this was such a quick turnaround. On this we've had. We've heard internally from people who have had years of discussions about launching subscription products, and they just did it. It was it was phenomenal how quickly they did it. Uh, it also negotiated to appear on supermarket shelves, which helped keep circulation revenue intact. Uh, that was the first time in 29 years in its entire long history that it appeared on supermarket shelves, first with Sainsbury's and then went into a couple of others. And 50% of those net proceeds went to support those vendors who couldn't safely sell the magazine anymore. And as you know, we're personally aware of The Big Miss You, which is its podcast which it launched, that was a celebration of the relationship between its magazine's vendors and its customers, because obviously it was one of the entrants to the Publisher Podcast Awards. 
So I suppose one of the questions here is what what are they going to keep as I'm sort of quoting like things get back to normal, obviously, mm. you know, the new normal or whatever. But what what are they going to look at keeping is they kind of get back to their normal distribution model. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I suspect. I think a lot of this will become baseline for them. I don't yeah. think they'll go back to... Why would you? If people so. take a subscription. I mean, I've got a big issue subscription. It's on a standing order. Um, I don't necessarily see big issue vendors regularly. So it works. Why would they go back to just having vendors selling? You can understand why they might not necessarily want to play up the digital side of it because obviously the vendors, the vendors selling it directly to people is such a huge part of what makes the almost a big issue community. But I think you're right that it's almost additive for a lot of people that digital subscription and also I think that their their digital version of the magazine as well is sticking around basically forever now. There just seems to be to me to be no impetus to get rid of that. Um, I would actually love to see a, continu- a continuation of, say, The Big Miss You. Not under that title, obviously, but as that celebration of vendor and community as well. You could, I think yeah. you could really build that out into a well, a really viable commercial product. And what, when I talked to, to Paul Chiu, not that mm-hmm. long ago, actually, he said that what they wanted to do was double down on this idea that The Big Issue is, is a social enterprise. It's yeah. seen as a social enterprise. So it's not just the magazine it's doing all sorts of other stuff through the big issue foundation and all, all these other things you know they've got a they got a plan with electric bikes in aberdeen mm. you know there's there's just the innovation if you like that was forced on them by the pandemic i think they've they've got this impetus now to take that in so many different directions did you just use the word impetus because I used it before? Well, probably some, because it's <laughs> not a word I would necessarily use. Uh, yeah, and impetus. actually, something that I think is <laughs> something that I think is probably worth flagging up is the fact that they did continue producing the magazine itself, and you know the, the content, absolutely, which has just been a phenomenal over the past year. Uh, there was as much as I did want to flag up the FT and its, uh, you know, and the the Atlantic to some extent for making its coronavirus content free. It will. Ultimately, it was always going to be the big issue for me. That's my See, big this is going to be really difficult to follow on from now because my, mine is literally just... <laughs> commercial stuff. Commercial well, that's stuff. Why I put my, that's why I put this one in, yeah. Boring old revenue crap. <laughs> At least well, you go first, though. At least we didn't get to the end and then you're suddenly like, I love this social enterprise. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But I, I do want to flag as well, there's a, there's a great quote from um, the it's editor Paul McNamee who, after they delivered one million to their vendors, he said... I also like to remind people that it wasn't the big issues money, it was yours. You and thousands like you who gave us a hand up when we had to put our hand out, which is a great phrase. You kept us here all the way through every day and every week of the COVID crisis. And I think that more than anything speaks to how successful the big issue has been in actually almost, God, enabling that community to contribute to that social enterprise. It's been it's been amazing. So should we just stop here then? Yeah. <laughs> Bye, guys. Well, maybe I can maybe I can edit it so I'll go last. But uh, my big loser has been BuzzFeed. Mm. Um, even even though they launched a sex toy. Even though they've launched that sex toy, yeah, they they've launched that branded sex toy, which I do flag up in a little bit. But it just seems to me that over the last year they have Peretti has really betrayed everything that he claimed the brand stood for. 
So in a what I think is a deliberate effort to throw the baby out with the bathwater because the baby wasn't bringing in enough money, BuzzFeed's commitment to journalism was belied by its treatment of union journalists and the HuffPost UK staff that it jettisoned recently. So both HuffPost and BuzzFeed had to make deep cuts after years of phenomenal growth, but of course, falling online advertising revenue and the proportion of money they actually take from that has forced their hand to some extent. Um, you know, it was part of that big raft of online deals like Vox Media acquiring New York Media, which I completely missed because I was in India, and Vice Media buying Refinery29 the following month. Uh, but it also followed BuzzFeed shutting down its UK and Australian newsrooms. And The Guardian quite rightly state that this is the end of the once disruptors' global ambitions. And go on, Esther. I was going to say, it seemed to be very much a case this year that, that they had certain targets, so they just, it, it was a cutting their way to profitability type mm-hmm. thing. Whereas give it, you know, give it a couple of, like the, the HuffPost, yes, it was causing headaches for, for Verizon, but give it give it a couple of years and BuzzFeed could have really done something with that. Whereas they were just like, eh, nah. Well, yeah, it. and it's, it's obviously, it's, it's always got one eye on its first, on its, you know, future financial considerations. But you're right, I think it cut that too early because I think post UK. What's interesting there is the origin story for those two things. What you mean? How they were well, originally the sort of the same organisation, and perhaps he had a one foot in both camps. No, even further back than that, you know, Buzzfeed fundamentally was a native advertising play, mm. um, where the HuffPost, you know, when it right back to its roots, was a journalism play. Yeah, and I think. I don't know that BuzzFeed, although the BuzzFeed News has done amazing stuff, was it ever really, or has it ever really been part of BuzzFeed's DNA there? No, certainly but, not. But that's we, that's where I thought the, the HuffPost acquisition was really great because they could have then used that to build out their proper, like their, their quote, proper journalism play. And you've then got the BuzzFeed and the cat quizzes and all that sort of stuff on the other side. And you've very much got two much more distinct camps there. Um, and I, like, I know HuffPost is carrying on, but the, the way that they've, Basically, completely just in the UK team is not not a good sign. No, definitely not. And it's people you like Jess Brammer who have you know years of experience in actually delivering some amazing journalism, and they're going to land on their feet, obviously, because they're amazing. But the the fact that it's they just got jettisoned so abruptly within a month of the merger going through, and in such a bad way as well. Do you remember how they actually went about? I think it was the Canadian team how they went about telling them that they were they were being fired. No. If you haven't received an email by noon, oh, yeah. you've not got a job. Yeah, that's bullshit. That is complete, complete bullshit. And so, I, I mean, I think that Esther's got a point that you, news has always, or rather Peter's got a point that news always sat very awkwardly among the rest of its endeavours. And, you know, we, we we have been very complimentary about its launching, was it Tasty? And, you know, it's kind of sex, sexual wellness uh, e-commerce play. But that 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 lack of commitment to journalism this year just makes me think that it makes me think a lot less of Peretti, and it makes me think a lot less of the wider BuzzFeed team, who obviously they like to have that for prestige because it gave their native advertising a boost mm-hmm. to say you know we are produced by the same guys who are producing this very high quality journalism, and they did. It just now to me feels very very callous. And it, it limits their opportunities to do stuff. Does it go back to that whole VC-funded conversation? Rapacious capitalism. Yeah, that we've I, I think so. Yeah, so many times. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, so the loser this time is VC funding. Loser. <laughs> 
I don't know. Do either of you have anything to answer that? It's it's sort of uh, after the the highs of the big issue story. Yeah, I was going to say this is going to be a really roller coaster, great <laughs> depressing episode, isn't it? Well, yeah. okay. Well, let's get back onto the next. <laughs> let's get onto the next great one. And Esther, you you picked a, a a huge winner here. Oh yeah, I shot down this as soon as we picked the theme <laughs> of the episode. Um, my winner is actually Future PLC. Um, if you've been following them at all, this is a pretty obvious choice, but I'm going to make the case here. And I, I've heard about making the case when Chris has made such a great one for Big Issue. But anyway, um, so uh, future in a, in a sense, I, I I know nobody could have predicted the pandemic, but they happen to be in a particularly good position when it kicked in because future have focused a lot on e-commerce over the last five years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just so happened that as the pandemic kicked in, everybody had to turn to online shopping to get their stuff. Um, and I think what was it? it? They saw about five years of growth within three months, three months for, yeah. for e-commerce. So, for a publisher that has focused heavily on developing that over the last couple of years, Future were in a very good place. Um, not only that, when they when the pandemic hit, they actually ended up launching three new brands. They said, okay, so you know what what are people going to be doing during the pandemic? So they launched a gardening title and um, kind of gardening in whatever space you've got, even if that's like a little tiny kitchen garden in the back of a flat sort of thing. Um, they launched like a fitness and wellness brand for the one hour exercise we were allowed to take a day. Um, and then they did like a kind of what to binge in lockdown site as well. So to be able to launch those within so, you know, a month or two of, of lockdown for, for a publisher of that size is quite impressive. Doesn't oh, that yeah, feel no, but... like so long ago? I know. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that nuts? Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, obviously, because not, not everything has been on e-commerce, um, their ad business actually hasn't been hit as hard as many other publishers because they've got this huge stable of really, really weird niche titles. And those tend to be really quite immune to the kind of boom-bust cycles of ad revenue. So generally, they've, they've been quite well set up to weather this. Yeah, um, it's interesting. You wouldn't have that because a couple of years ago, Future weren't in yeah. this stronger position at all. <laughs> not at all. Yeah, I don't uh, think they've been doing e-commerce for five years. I don't think it's as long as that. Well, they've been doing affiliate revenue for at least that yeah, long. Yeah, I don't mean that. I don't. I mean, I don't think they've been truly, truly focused on. Oh, that's I like, see what you mean. That's okay. properly two years. Mm. Um, um, well, it's they not, were kind of not... rudderless before. Well, not. Ru- I don't mean that in the sense that they didn't have a management. Uh, they did clearly. But they were sort of. I don't think they'd found a place yet. The growth they yeah, that they, they have had themselves. over the last probably three years is nuts. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, they yeah, dipped their toes into what would eventually become their strength, but they hadn't really invested in it. Yeah, um, um, let's also not forget that this. Well, last year also saw um, they finished their integration of TI Media as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, I keep forgetting that they actually bought them, and yeah. that was a couple of years ago as well. So that's that's all been done. So they're expecting profit to there. <laughs> they're expecting profitability to be ahead of current market expectations um, according to the latest trading statement and the wackiest acquisition that they made this year was the goko group of goko yeah Perfect. that feels like a that feels like a long time ago but as you said that that really does speak to their new focus on developing that e-commerce line That's well and i also i also missed that they'd acquired um mozo which is yeah, basically the australian version open. yeah mm. um so that, that was that was in february I was, I, was, I was trying to think, why did I miss that? I just remembered why I missed that now. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they're, they're looking to build out um, very much like a, a sort of finance vertical over there in terms of content as well and um, looking to build um, price comparison out as an actual revenue stream. So they, they're doing very, very smart things and they're very well set up to do it. And, yeah, I think I think they've been, they've been a big winner of this. 
Oh, and they repaid all their furlough cash in July. Oh, that's that's something else we should flag up. The, the number of media outlets who have actually managed to repay their furlough cash mm-hmm. from The Spectator to The Guardian. Yeah. It's been, it has been heartening to see that a lot of them have weathered the storm better than we thought, perhaps. I wonder what the rules on that are. Do they have to repay it, or is it just is it? I think like mm, I think good corporate. I don't think they have to. Sort of no, I don't. D- no, no, nobody has to. But it's one of those things that mm. maybe, <laughs> maybe you should if you don't need it. Not yeah. so rapacious capitalism. Well, exactly. Mm. Uh, you have a good last bullet point though here, Esther. Yeah, it's not all been sunshine and roses. Though. I don't want to weaken my case, but it hasn't. Mm. Um, so they did make obviously as part of the TI media acquisition, there were job losses, which is unfortunate, but happens with with any integration. And they also closed six print titles in April 2020, which again feels like ages ago. Um, and of course, Chris, I think you were particularly gutted because they didn't renew their Gizmodo and Kotaku licenses. Yeah, there goes some freelance revenue for all, Chris. But also, they, those sites were really, really good, and I knew some, knew some very good people there. It, it makes sense for them. Although the, they they said that, that was more uh, that that wasn't due to traffic or anything else. There, that was, it was just to do with the fact that the terms of the licensing deal make, yeah. made, meant that it just wasn't profitable enough for them. Yeah, it's fair enough. It's sad. They're a really good team, but yeah. Oh. Well, see, here we go again. We're in the trough of despair. Well, it's a nice transition into your next point, Esther. So who has been your, Sorry, let's not say team. loser, let's just say, you know, who hasn't fared quite so well? Okay. So I, so I started writing this and, and then the more I looked into it, the more I was like, actually, they've not done as badly as I thought. So, so my, <laughs> my, I call it my sort of loser, <laughs> are travel mags that didn't pivot fast enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to start with the positive of this first with a little bit of negative at the end because actually there are some travel brands that have done really, really well out of this so I'm kind of cheating a little bit but um, I'm the optimistic one of you three so <laughs> <laughs> um, so obviously like travel was well, was, is, will continue to be absolutely devastated um, and travel mags kind of went two ways they either um, completely like, you know, print issues cancelled everything, really struggling um, or there were some that actually sort of looked at the situation and, and shifted. They, they said, well, what do our audience need at this point? Because we've still got an audience. What, what do they need? What do they want? They're all stuck at home. What can we do for them? Um, so a, a plug for the episode that we've done with um, you and Zhong of Out There, uh, that's an LGBTQ luxury travel mag. Um, they said, okay, you know, we'll put our print issue on hold for a few months, but we'll actually launch the experiential uh, there. How do you even say that? Experientialist. They said, we'll, we'll launch the Experientialist, which is like a kind of editorial initiative they're doing, which is to bring the world to their readers at home. So they use writers all around the world. They had, did like an online event series. They did awards. Um, and they, they very much kind of did this whole, you know, yes, we can't travel, but let's bring travel to you. Um, mm. And as a result, you know, they had online traffic doubled. They were able to keep a lot of the revenue from their luxury brands. And um, they've got their own content studio as well to, to keep things afloat. And there's a theme to this, which I'll bring out in a minute. Skift is another one. Yeah. Um, Skift, uh, they were they're about to launch their Skift Pro product as the pandemic hit, and they were like, okay, let's just put it on hold a couple of months. Um, but then they pitched it very much as a, well, you need this professional info to do your jobs better as travel is reopening. Um, and that, I think, was really, really smart of them, that despite the fact that there's no travel, they were still like, well, no, you you need us to do your job better as, as we prepare for the industry to reopen, which it still hasn't, but, you know... <laughs> But yeah, then... <laughs> it's been it's been it's been awful watching that. Actually, I've seen some of the you know travel the TTG media guys really lobbying the government just because there's been no certainty. And obviously, as much as that's hit the travel companies, it's also hit the travel media market. 
Yeah, and TTG, just no certainty. TTG have been there sitting there saying you, you can't give us like a week's notice on yeah. initiatives and things like that because it's, you know, people's jobs and livelihoods are depending on this. So obviously Skift, the way Skift positioned that is, as you said, very, very smart. Yeah. Kind of that um, forward-looking way. But it's not all good news and I will come into my loser part of the loser mm. section. <laughs> um, so Family Traveller um, went into liquidation last year because, um, uh, Peter, I know you brought this out in your media moments a bit, that yeah. revenue went from 100k a month to absolutely nothing and you just cannot recover from that. Um, although, apparently, this has now been bought by an investment group and they're planning to relaunch. Yeah, so they, they're uh, hiring a bunch of people from the Times, which I know you're going to just talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, because News UK closed the Sunday Times travel magazine in August, um, just as it was about to hit its 200th issue. Um, they tried to kind of deflect that away from the pandemic. They said that they wanted to just focus on their core digital travel products. But there were a lot of people that said, well, you know, they've obviously they had a complete ad revenue collapse due to the pandemic. And it's probably not worth them trying to ride it out if they want to transition more to digital as, as the magazine goes on. Um, airline magazines are not a thing really at the moment. Um, and mm. Airlines aren't about- really a thing. <laughs> there's a lot of questions about what will return from those um, but ge- generally as I was writing this there's, there's a common theme which I know we talk about a lot which is those that were 100% reliant on ad revenue have, have fallen whereas those that have multiple revenue streams have, have generally been okay I thought oh, I a great description of this I can't remember if it was Brian Morrissey or, if, or Jacob Donnelly uh, and they were talking about ad revenue coming back and he says an advert is basically a call to do something. So in the pandemic, when you couldn't do anything, there was no point in advertising. I just thought it summarised it brilliantly. You yeah. know, why did that advertising go away? Well, because there was no reason for it. And it's obvious, but it was explained brilliantly. I, I hate that idea, though. The, the idea that it can be that travel was so completely wiped out as even kind of a forward-looking thing, because obviously there was no certainty, that even those calls to action couldn't be delayed. You couldn't advertise in that time to keep things front and centre of mind. Yeah, there's no when point we in could building do brand or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. Although I'm sure the ad sales guys are banging on about that all <laughs> the time, as they you know, rightly should. That wasn't too depressing. No, there's a lot of hope in there. Yeah. Nice one, Go on then, kill, kill it off for us. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think the, the, the whole travel magazine thing is the, the point about you know the, what you've said about the experience. <laughs> what you've it's said hard to, to say, that, isn't that's it? it? Absolutely, experientialist. Yes. What you've said about the experientialist uh, and you know Skiff's focus on on, on uh, professional information, family travel coming back. There's a market there. It's not. That market isn't going to go away. It's just going to come back pretty slowly. And as always, magazine publishers or, or digital publishers will find a niche and they'll serve that niche. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's analysts saying there's so much pent-up spend in yeah. the travel market that the minute we're allowed to travel again, like it's just going to go completely flooding and, and just go completely bonkers. So they're, they're expecting, you know, all the people that haven't been on holiday for two or three years are going to have saved up all that money and they're going to be looking for proper, you know, luxury experiences almost. Um, gosh, that sounds so cheesy. <laughs> that does sound pretty cheesy. But yeah, you, you, you've got people that haven't spent on holidays in the last couple of years that are going to have a little bit more money in the bank, hopefully, to spend on a good holiday. Yeah, I think many holidays. Oh, I'm, I'm so antsy. I just want to go on that travel site now instantly and just splurge. <laughs> I know the thought of just lying on a beach in like Portugal or something and mm. just 
just soaking up some sunshine. Absolutely, amen. <sighs> oh, oh no, wait, I've got a baby, again. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll have your place then, thanks. Uh. Well, Peter then. Ah, uh, okay. Ooh, so my yeah. my my big winner, I felt was for me anyway, was pretty obvious. Uh, it's immediate media. Okay, why? Well, I think again that classic niche publisher play that Esther mm. kind of talked about with Future. Um, there was a, re- a really good interview with uh, Tom Bureau, uh, immediate. I think he's immediate chief exec. Anyway, he's a boss for immediate. And he described the business as having a spring in its step now um, after looking at the sort of growth in subscriptions and in digital traffic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, so I'm going to I'm going to bring the, the bummer aspect to this in very quickly. I think it's really, really important when we're talking about winners to remember that they didn't just win. You know, immediate closed 12 titles in the summer last year. Yeah. They cut over 100 jobs. You know, so there's a lot of people felt a lot of pain. Um, in, I think in, at the time we, we, yeah, I think at the time we sort of said that it was almost being used as an excuse. Well, it's that idea of right sizing that we've talked about so much. And yes, Christopher, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> I can breathe easy now that it's been said. And I think there's a lot of these, you know, when you look at the numbers on these titles that closed, so many of them were kind of, it's a horrible word, but they were marginal. Mm. They weren't delivering a return, which when we live in a system of rapacious capitalism is actually the is the point. Whether it should be or it shouldn't be, it is. Um, so that idea of right-sizing it immediate, I think it, it was that was where they went with it. So now it's got 75 titles in its portfolio. Their overall overall circulation was up about 9%. Print, get this, Mm. print was up 14%. Yeah, what were they attributing that to? Well, there's a couple of stories here that I think are interesting. This is the cheesiest quote. I hate this quote, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> Tom Bureau in this interview says that our purpose is to create happiness and enhance fulfillment for our customers. Oh. And if you can really do that, then you've got a reasonably good place to build a business. That is so mm. cheesy. Mm. But, I don't like that. You know, it's, well, it's like a proper Willy Wonka quote, isn't it? <laughs> um, but he's right. Come with me <laughs> and you'll be the in I- our world of pure immediate media. The idea that, you know, think of your average kind of tower block somewhere and there's loads and loads of people locked in in May and, and June last year and they have got a window box like, you know, Esther was talking about the future. Uh, or they've got a pile of yarn and they want to make something that cheers them up. Or, uh, people were looking for... G- guilty crochet. Yeah. <laughs> people were looking for things to make them happy. He's, this is where it has a wanky quote, but it's he's right. And I think they'd absolutely double down on that. The best example is Gardner's World. Well, the best mm. example for me. I think Radio Times is a great example. They've, you know, they 
the editor described it as uh, the fourth emergency service. <laughs> so when you're locked in and you want to know what to watch because your head's exploding and you're bored, you go to the Radio Times and you just find what you want to watch. You know what? That would I would love that now. As opposed to the hours I'll spend just flicking through Netflix yeah. and Amazon Prime yeah. trying to find anything in the moment that takes my interest. Get yourself a Radio Times subscription. <laughs> I mean, that, that Radio Times was the one that absolutely stunned me because I, I thought the pandemic would have completely killed that off. It, what was it? It was up 6% or something during yeah. the no, first was, half of the year, wasn't it? That's crazy to me. It, it did really, really well for that exact reason. But Gardner's World, I think, is more interesting in some ways because so it saw 31% circulation growth. So over 200,000 people subscribed in the... Not, it reached 216,000 216, people in the second half of 2020. Online traffic was up 170%. There was 5 million people on the Gardner's World website in May. Because people were just like, that was, they were looking for something to make them happy in their gardens if they had one, or their window boxes or whatever it was, was making them happy. And I, I interviewed... I interviewed Jackie Scully at Think a couple of weeks ago, mm. and she was talking about Gardner's World. She said one of the things that they didn't, you know, whether it was through luck or judgment, when there was seed shortages, Gardner's World was offering seeds to subscribers, to new subscribers. There were seed shortages? Yeah, apparently. What? I can well believe that, yeah, yeah. People probably went absolutely berserk with it. So if they have, what's it called, a, a garden? <laughs> if they got one of those things, then presumably, yeah, everyone would just made a run on the bank. Jason, so sadly, out of my flat window. <laughs> I, I think the point with that is, is that I, and the way Jack described this was that people needed magazines at that point. For whatever reason that was, whether it's for your mental health or whether it's because they had, you know, a, a, a crochet kit on the front. Yeah. Um. <laughs> And I think the big challenge for moving forward is how do we keep, or how does the industry keep people needing them in that, that in that same way? Mm. That's the big challenge, but the absolute opportunity. The other thing I'd say, and it goes back to what Esther was talking about with future. This didn't just happen for immediate. Immediate had been working very hard in the past on SEO. And they've been working very hard on growing their subscriber base. Mm. So when this hit, they were kind of already in the right place, same as future. So it's that idea that I'm sure there's a Chinese proverb that's <laughs> something along the lines of prepare to be lucky. And I think that's what's happened with people like future and with immediate is they were they were preparing all the time and then they got lucky. So I'm, I'm also I, I'm really glad to be able to do this without mentioning like the New York Times, the Washington Post. I very nearly put the NYT as my <laughs> as my big winner. But again, it's the same thing. They've been doing what they were doing for a long, long time. Yeah. Um. So you know, the, I guess the big lesson for anyone out there is do the right stuff, and you know, it, it will be, be rewarded. <laughs> Just how you figure out what the right stuff is. It's, yeah. it's, it's a smart part. Listen to media voices. Yeah. Uh, so if you want anyway, to succeed, do the things necessary for success. Exactly. I know how I want my big loser to be. Well, I can see that you could, you've you've had some trouble narrowing it down to one of two things here. <laughs> well, my my want, I hope mm. the big loser 
out of all of this is dickhead misinformation spewing columnists. Peter, I've got some bad news for you. They have ended up being the big winners. I'm not sure. That I, well, yeah, I've had this, this, this is why I, I think I haven't settled on this. Mm. So I was looking at, um, obviously I was looking at Twitter. And <laughs> That's where your problems start. I saw someone who shall remain nameless talking about um, the the new Indian variant mm-hmm. and saying that you know it's only one amino acid different. And anyone that's had the vaccination will be fine. It's like, you know, fuck all. What, what cheered me about this was the number of people that piled on and said, shut up. Yeah. You're talking mince. <laughs> but that's, again, Twitter's not exactly representative of the wider it's public, not. is it? And if, you know, while people pay these numpties to have opinions, and you, you know, you've got your own list. Everyone's got their own list of you know, people they love to hate on Twitter. But I just hope at some point, with Twitter bringing in, have you read this article yet? And pulling people off the platform and other platforms getting their act together with shutting down misinformation. I just hope that eventually this this period will actually have done some good in terms of focusing on the truth rather than this bollocks. Yeah, well, that, that's partly why I wanted to flag the, the FT at the start and the Atlantic for sort of acting as effective counter for that. Yeah, I was but... going to say, can, can I add a positive in here? <laughs> yeah, go on. <laughs> um, that actually, I, I remember reading a story a couple of weeks ago about this, but for all their faults in everything else I've done... Um, <laughs> oh, the, the Daily Mail, right? No, no. Oh. Well, in the group. Um, the UK press in general, when it comes to the vaccine rollout and information around it, have actually been really good. Mm. Um, and really kind of united in trying to reassure people about a lot of the issues and things that come up. Um, and and I know they've been credited with part of the reason that we've had such a high vaccine take-up in this country. Mm. Yeah, it's, 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 it's good. I mean, the ONS is saying it might reach 95% take-up. That's... That is nuts. That is yeah. really, really incredible. Uh, yeah, no, so I, I suppose that is a sort of slight silver lining. On the, on the flip side of that, you do get people like Dan Wooden, who have been rewarded from their anti-mask stance by being given a plum job at the Daily Mail and GB News. So that's good. No, I know. I'm not saying it's perfect. <laughs> it was a hope, not a, not a fact. Well, then, what's your... What's your okay, before we go on to that, maybe take the bit out where I said I wanted to punch someone in the forehead because that's probably not legally a good thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. Um. So, actually, now that I've moved out of hope and into reality... <laughs> uh, and we should have done this the way around. Well, Essa and I chatted about this, and uh, very briefly, she said, if you're looking for losers, there's loads. And uh, we settled on events companies. Or, yeah. or not events companies, that's wrong, but media companies who have gone too hot and heavy on events. And Informa has to be the biggest one. Um, yeah, that's some of those stats are ridiculous. Well, one point one billion in lost revenue mm. um, for for Informa. Yeah, that's I think that's just in the UK. The yeah, revenues yeah, are down over forty percent. Like they're not alone either. Because you've got Euro Money, Read. There's there's so many that that kind of went really hard into that exhibitions event space that 
just haven't like especially if you've gone if you if you go with the big events the, there's no way like you, you can't yeah. recreate that online and they've just been stuck with absolutely no revenue and I, I think the events business moving forward is really seriously going to have to you know have a have a strategy because I was talking to someone who who was talking about blended events. Yeah. Um, and people talk about blended events like, oh, here's this fancy new way of doing things. We're virtual and we're in the real world. Actually, that's two events. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So do you, well, do you have staff for two events? Or are you expecting your staff to deliver two events without any more resource? Or are you going to make twice as much money? You know, there, there's a lot of questions there. I, I just published a uh, Drum Network podcast about exactly that about how hybrid events are effectively, like you said, it's not just to sort of like point the cameras at the thing at the stage and just turn them on. Yep. There's a lot goes into making the virtual event it in itself a different proposition. So it's not just as simple as, oh, well, just film the live event and, and call it a day. Not not even close. Yeah, I think there was, a, there was an interview with the with the Hearst live events team that was just saying like, you know, the, the costs, like they don't quite double, but there are a lot of additional costs and you have to be able to compensate for that. You can't just offer it as like a sort of free... Oh, you could just join the virtual event online. It's, it just doesn't work like that. Like mm. to, to do a good virtual event, you have to invest, as we know. Well, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. You know, I think yeah. people have learned a lot from live versus virtual. You know, I actually thinking back to Brian Morrissey about when he was talking about the podcast. Um, and yeah. He said they had this like insane realization that you don't actually have to be in the same room to record a podcast. <laughs> so, and I think that's happened with events where people speak a lineup. I think that was actually in that Wall Street Journal uh, thing that you did, Esther. That yeah. you, your speaker lineup gets better because people don't have to jump on a plane and come to your event. Yeah. So yeah. I think there's loads of opportunities there, but. Um, that's there's a long way to come back for these guys. Yeah, do you know I can remember this? Uh, the, one of the last digital media strategies events we did, um, we actually ended up beaming um, Rafa Ali from Skift yep. in, and that was I suppose that that was like a, a virtual speaker coming into a physical room, and that 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 worked at the time. It did work. I mean, it was fucking terrifying to do. But yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it'd be so much simpler now, and I think that honestly, if we want to end on a positive, we can say that. The, the big winners from the pandemic will be the people who actually take the lessons that they've learned and learn to apply it to sort of, you know, the normal running order. Because there are opportunities here. Like you said, there are opportunities for more podcasts, there are opportunities for those hybrid events provided they've done well. There's opportunities to actually, you know, launch new products as the big issue has done. There's a bigger theme through all of this. And I know, I know, like, I know we half on about this a lot, but it's you can't be dependent on one revenue stream. Mm -hmm. You, you, the people that have we've highlighted are ones that have got multiple and you know, subscriptions people in a sense have got a little bit lucky. Well, actually, you know, so have e commerce, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's the people that have got other aspects of their business that when one or t even two streams fail, they've got a third one to fall back on. Yeah. I also think so much of six. Mix of six. <laughs> T-shirts. <laughs> I also think so much of this comes back to people that have actually thought about what their audience actually wants. You know, what's the what's the, the one line that, that drives through all these winners is that they've thought about how to get the audience involved or, mm. or how to deliver value to the audience. And it's, it's really boring, but that's what publishing's about. Yeah. 
Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> well, we can. I, I'm happy to leave that there. That seems like it has been. I love that we've celebrated the people who've done really well, and that Esther, you, through your insistence, we have actually found some silver linings for the people who haven't <laughs> necessarily weathered it quite so well. Yeah, yeah. Happy Ooh. to be the silver lining. And based on a couple of conversations that we've had over the past week, I know that people are actually quite hungry for a monthly subscription option if you'd like to support us. Well, we're happy to announce that you can go to co-fi.com slash media voices and you can select to reward us for the amazing content that we put out on a monthly basis. So thank you very much for anybody who takes the time to do that. We- or even to the people who sign up to do a single donation instead we already have some we already have a couple of uh, monthly subscribers who who we are god indebted to i think mr mark alker at uh, single track magazine supports us every month and well uh, nicola simpson at the international magazine center if you're absolutely desperate for more Media Voices content, and why wouldn't you be signing <laughs> up for a daily newsletter that contains four, count them four, of the most important media stories of the day. As curated, One media story, ah, ah, ah. Two media stories, ah, 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 ah. I think our sign-off is so much better when Esther's not <laughs> bossing us around. We're also very excited about our upcoming Publisher Podcast Insiders Meetup, which is taking place on the 26th of May at 4pm British Summertime. So you can sign up to that by, well, following any links in the newsletter or going on our website, and you can come and chat around all things podcasting with us and your peers. We had a great, almost accidental pilot following the Publisher Podcast Awards, and we're keen to keep that going. So please do come along. That was fun, that. But until next week, when we'll be back with a fantastic guest and something of a sort of more traditional tour through all the news and the views from the media world over the past week, stay safe and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.